0: Welcome to the FOI Equip Podcast, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Katolka. You know, the scriptures tell the story of God's chosen people and his plan to bring salvation to the whole world through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Come see why it matters that God would choose an ancient people to bring a timeless hope to a lost and broken world. Now listen, I want to encourage you to go to foiequip.org to sign up to be on our mailing list. You're going to receive vital information on how you can join our free, live, online FOI Equip classes. Now get ready. Join our expert staff on the FOI Equip podcast as we teach the scriptures, unravel the colorful world of Jewish culture and customs, reveal God's prophetic plan, and so much more. Now enjoy this teaching from FOI Equip.
1: All right. So, um, yeah, I just want to give you guys a real quick run through um, as far as our overall course structure for these three weeks. Last week, we looked at the tabernacle itself, uh, looking at its construction when it was received by Moses at Sinai and how it was built and, and all of the particular directions that God gave in that process and understanding its original significance. Uh, This week, we're going to be looking at uh, the priesthood and the sacrifices that were made in the tabernacle, uh, the ones that God prescribed in Leviticus. So we're going to be spending some of our time in Leviticus. Not that we'll be going verse by verse. No, no. Uh, I'm going to give you a summary. (laughs) Um, So we're going to look at the priesthood, the sacrifices, and then, of course, we have to talk just a little bit about atonement this evening. Next week, and I'm sure some of you have been wondering this—wondering when I'm going to discuss some of the ways that uh, the the temple, or excuse me, the tabernacle's construction uh, is used in the New Testament. Some of the the ways that it foreshadows things in the in the New Testament. Uh, that is next week, as we talk about the tabernacle's typology and how the New Testament uses the tabernacle. In, uh, in teaching us about God's progressive revelation of himself and his plan. So that's next week. That's upcoming. Hope you guys can join us for that. Now, this week, I thought we might um, <clears throat> first do a teeny bit of review. I'm not going to go through uh, a lot, but I just wanted to remind you a little bit of what we talked about last week. Okay, so you can see that reconstruction of the tabernacle there. This is a picture uh, that was uh, taken um, of a reconstruction that's in the desert in Timna Park in Southern Israel, uh, not far from the city at the very southernmost point, Eilat. Uh, and this one was uh, was set up uh, sometime back in order to try to help Christians be able to walk through and see what this original construction would have been like in its original setting. Um, So just really quickly, you can see again that we're talking about that space um, where where God told them to build uh, the tabernacle to very particular dimensions Uh, in the courtyard. You can see there in the picture uh, the brazen altar where all the the sacrifices were burned or the various portions were. You see the, the bronze laver or basin there where priests would have washed before their service and then moving into the tabernacle there you would have seen the um the holy place where the um where the lampstand was where the showbread was where the altar of incense was and then the veil and behind that the holy of holies the ark of the covenant inside that small 15 foot space there at the 15-foot square space at the back of the tabernacle, okay? So we went through all of those details last week. I thought this week we might start with a couple of words of Scripture, okay? Let me read these for you. The first is from Leviticus 17, verse 11. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. All right? This is from Leviticus 17. God is drawing that direct correlation between the idea of our life, the blood in uh, pumping in our veins that gives us life, tying it to this idea of what is it that makes atonement for our lives, those of us who have sinned, which if that's not you, then the Bible says you're a liar. Um, so <laughs> tying that idea that atonement is made by blood. It's made by life, all right? So and then the next verse that I wanted to highlight is from Hebrews verse 9 or chapter nine, verse 22. It says, "Indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So what we're going to be talking about tonight, is atonement in general. We're going to be talking about sacrifice, the lifeblood of the sacrifice poured out on behalf of the worshiper in uh, in the tabernacle's ministry by the priests as well as by the worshipers. We're going to be examining some of these ideas in more detail here tonight. So I want to uh, begin with talking just, just a couple of overview ideas about sacrifice. Sacrifice, of course, is not unique to uh, the Torah or to the Tanakh. It's not unique to the Bible. There are many other uh, cultures and religions over many millennia that have done sacrifices. They've all been for various reasons and by various means, but the Bible gives a very particular uh, version of what sacrifice should be and should look like. However, God doesn't codify these things. Until the Mosaic Covenant. Now, we, we have some indications that God must have given some idea. God must have given some indication of what he liked and what he didn't like because of some of the sacrifices that we saw prior to the Mosaic Covenant in uh, in the Torah, in Genesis. Now, on the very left of your screen there, you see a picture of Adam and Eve on their way out of the garden, Right. Adam and Eve on their way out of the garden after they had sinned God uh, and they realized that they were naked, God is the one who made clothing for them out of animal skins. Of course, there are some who debate, but uh, I believe that God must have sacrificed the life of an animal for the sin of Adam and Eve in that moment and made skins and clothing out of those skins for them. Now, this picture, just so you know, I think God is probably a better tailor than that. Um, I, I, they they look a little bit like rags to me. So maybe that artist has something else in mind. But we see the idea of sacrifice beginning all the way back there in Genesis um, chapter three. And then you notice there in the center picture we see uh, we see the sacrifices of Cain and Abel. And of course, Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God, but Cain's was not. And uh, and so we we have uh, a picture of sacrifice there that was acceptable to God the ones the kind that He wanted versus the kind that He didn't want that He didn't think was appropriate. On the right hand side of your screen you see Noah after the flood. One of the very first things that he did was to sacrifice to God. In fact, all of the patriarchs from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even going back further to Job, we see Job make, God telling Job to make sacrifices on behalf of his. Friends, I guess you could call them that, um, because they didn't say what was right about God. God was instituting this idea his way in his time. And as the progression of God's revelation was rolled out for humanity, it wasn't until the Mosaic covenant where God actually told them all the details of what sacrifices were acceptable, what weren't, and what actually managed to make atonement for his people. All right. So I'm not going to walk you through every single instance, but those are just some of the major ones of seeing sacrifices prior to the Mosaic Covenant. Um, Let me give you just a real brief overview of some of the uh, elements of the Mosaic sacrifices before we move to priests and then we'll get into Leviticus from there. Okay, so you see there um, some of my uh, my fun pictures of what animals were used. Uh, Of all the different sacrifices that were made, there were only five different types of animals that were ever used as a sacrifice, okay? An ox or a bull, a sheep, um, both of these can be male or female under, under certain requirements, under different sacrifices or rituals. So you see an ox or a bull or a cow, you see a sheep or a lamb, male or female, goats, male or female, turtle doves and pigeons now don't those animals look cute don't they just look adorable that sheep with his tongue sticking out you don't you, you don't want to hurt ban- uh, you know the 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 cute little woolly sheep right there do you and yet well now actually if you look at the uh at the pigeons one of them kind of looks like he's giving me the evil eye he looks like he might actually have what's coming to him but on the whole These animals were supposed to be blameless. They were supposed to be pure. They were supposed to be unblemished. They were supposed to be wholesome and good, right? The best that you have, you you, you give the best that you have to God. All these animals were supposed to be uh, without any blemish when they're offered to God. Um, The five different types of sacrifice listed in Leviticus uh, chapters one through well roughly seven. Um, but the five different types of sacrifices are the burnt offering. the uh, the burnt offering was a whole animal burned on the altar, okay? Uh, then there's the meal or the grain offering. This was usually an expression of thanksgiving to God, recognizing his sovereign provision in your lives. There's the peace offering which is an expression of experiencing peace or fellowship with God, something good happens in your life. And you want to, you want to just say, God, it is good to be yours. You offer a peace offering. Then of course there's the sin offering. And then there's the the trespass or guilt offering. And we'll get into some of the differences between those as we uh, get into the details about those different sacrifices. All right. So, Before we get into all those details in Leviticus, I want to talk just a little bit about the priests, the ones that stand between you and God, the ones that are mediating this position of the worshiper. Okay, so let's talk about priests for just a little bit. Throughout Exodus uh, and Leviticus and Numbers, we learn quite a bit about uh, the priests themselves. The text tells us that only Levites were allowed to serve as priests. Only Levites, that's of the the tribe of Levi. Um, Now, in, uh, in Numbers and in Exodus in particular, they're often referred to as the sons of Aaron. And God says in Numbers chapter 8 <clears throat> that God set the Levites apart to be his because he considered them to be Israel's firstborn. Which is kind of funny, if you stop and think about it for a minute, because Levi wasn't actually Jacob's firstborn, was he? No. He had Reuben. He had Simeon. He had Levi and then Judah. So Levi wasn't actually the firstborn, but God goes out of his way to say, I am considering Levi to be the firstborn. I want them. And the reason why God gives is because he says that the tribe of Levi, the sons of Aaron, were the ones that were wholeheartedly dedicated to me. Now, um, with in the case of Reuben, You know, in Jacob's blessing at the end of Genesis, he points to Reuben's uh, uh, shameful behavior in taking one of his concubines as his wife. Reuben is no longer the firstborn. And then we have Simeon and Levi and that interesting story about uh, Dinah and the situation that happened there and so Simeon isn't considered firstborn, and in terms of ruling Israel, that disqualified Levi in that situation too, because Jacob's blessing skips right over him and says that the rod, the rulership of Israel, is going to live with Judah, but God says, no, wait, not, not so fast, you know, that may be true in terms of ruling Israel, however, I'm going to consider Levi as my firstborn, the first one that I'm going to take as my very own. Everything that's firstborn belongs to me. And so I'm claiming Levi as my own. So the Levites were, of course, required to maintain a level of physical and spiritual cleanliness Above everybody else, Leviticus 21 is quite the read if you ever have time to go back. I mean, they, they can't even grieve with their family when one of their spouses dies if they're the high priest. But all Levites had very particular rules about what they were allowed to do, what they weren't, what would what would make them uh, impure in front of God and not able to serve the way that they were supposed to serve. So they had to maintain physical and and, and spiritual cleanliness. Um, and then you might wonder, how in the world are the Levites supposed to live? I mean, when, when, God, uh, when God gave all of them their portions of the land when they made it into Canaan, uh, God specifically said, and even all the way back to Jacob's original blessing, he said, you're going to be scattered throughout the tribes of Israel. You're not going to have your own inheritance. I am your inheritance. And you you can kind of see one of the small Levites at the back of the crowd going, okay, God, that's really nice, but how do I eat? Where do I farm? How How do I take care of my family? And what we find out is that God makes provision for them in the sacrificial system. God provides various portions of different sacrifices that are specifically supposed to be given to the Levitical priests special ties that were taken up for them. And even though they didn't have uh, a normal inheritance in Canaan when they got there, they were given 48 different cities that were specifically given to Levite families in Joshua chapter 29. <clears throat> so the Levites were supported by the funds and by the sacrifices that were made by the worshipers that were coming to God. Now, while they are ministering in the tabernacle, God had some requirements for, for them there as well. Remember, when the worshipers were coming to sacrifice, I mean, God made a very, very big deal about how it was to be done and the proper way that it was to be done and we're talking about we're talking about spiritual atonement here right so so God had some very particular things not just for the worshipper to have to consider but also for the levites who were serving in front of him they were in the presence of God he was very meticulous in what they were supposed to do and be and even what they were supposed to wear so um when we talk about the levites garments Okay, There are a couple of things that they have in common. Now, just a, just a normal serving priest on a random Tuesday afternoon, if you went up to the tabernacle and wanted to, uh, wanted to offer a sacrifice, the, the Levite that would show up there to serve as your priest for that particular sacrifice um, would, as far as what he would be wearing, he would have, um, the text doesn't give us all the details, but it says that they had coats and sashes and caps or miters, you might call them, and the text says that they were supposed to be made for glory and for beauty, which is a cool way of describing it, isn't that? Now, uh, we think that they were probably in some ways similar to the design of the high priest uh, garments, but we don't get all the details. The text doesn't tell us other than the fact that they're made of linen, that they're finely crafted, and that um, and that they have some similarities to the high priest's outfits. Um, so let's let's look at the high priest outfits. But you know what? If we're if we're going to talk about the high priest outlets, I, I say a picture is worth a thousand words, and uh, and I'm not even that creative. So I figured we need a high priest here tonight, and thankfully we we even we even have one here among us, and and I want to show you his picture. All right. Here is our high priest for the evening. Yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, the author of Israel Always and the radio uh, FOI radio host, our friend Mr. Chris Katalka. I didn't make it. I swear, Chris. <laughs> Dan
0: you're go- you're going down, Dan, you're going down. <laughs> I like it. That is great. That is amazing. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, I, I, you know, but it's, it's got a certain panache. I I could see you walking around the office like that, Chris, that, that,
0: that might go over well. That's, that's what I wear to church, Dan. That's what I wear to church.
1: (laughs) Oh, and I, and and I told him we have to have the high priestly beard. We needed to have it. It needed to exist in reality, um, for an evening. And maybe on merchandise later. Um, okay, so uh, let's walk through this, okay? What the text tells us in Exodus when God said to design the high priestly outfit for his ministry. The text tells us that uh, there is a linen coat, and you can see the white linen undergarments there. And and uh, there's that base layer, so to speak, of what the priest would be wearing. Um, you can also see the blue robe that's there. The, the robe was supposed to be made of all blue, which, of course, was very expensive to have that amount of dye and that color of dye. It was very expensive. Uh, it was supposed to be one woven piece reinforced at the opening. Um, it wasn't supposed to have any cuts or, or, or uh, stitched together pieces. No, it's all one whole piece says that the bottom edge is supposed to be embroidered with uh, pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet. Where have we heard those colors before? Yes, that's right. In the entrance screen of the tabernacle and some of the furnishing curtains that were in the tabernacle, those same colors show up again in the high priest's outfit because he needs to match his surroundings. Uh, God had a plan for for making sure the high priest looked to be in place. Okay. And then of course it tells us alternating with the pomegranates on the bottom of his robe is supposed to be uh it's supposed to be hung with golden bells that you can hear the priest as he's coming. Part of this has to do with maintaining his cleanliness. Part of it is so that we can hear the priest as he is going about his business, making intercession for us. Um this is uh this is to to let us know that that good things are. Happening right now above that is what is called the ephod. Okay, the the ephod it, it's kind of a a two sided smock or or apron almost. Uh, it was um, made of blue purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen together, and also gold wire was woven into this embroidery in uh, in kind of a checked pattern. Now I'm not so sure that that tic-tac-toe pattern that we have on our screen there is exactly right. Uh, Remember these were supposed to be the work of an artist. So we don't know exactly what that pattern may have looked like, but maybe something like that. The ephod hung over his shoulders front and back and then it's bound to him tightly around the waist with the sash. The, or, or possibly your Bible might say a girdle. It's made of the same type of embroidery as the ephod, wrapped around him, and then excess is hung down the side. You notice up on his shoulders are uh, some uh, some beautiful stones. Right? These are in the text. They're referred to as anx stones on the shoulders. Um, now we're not sure exactly what stone that may have been. The Septuagint translated that essentially emeralds, Uh, so it may have been emeralds. Uh, Josephus claims uh, sardonyx, which I don't even know what that kind of stone is, but there are precious stones on his shoulders, and binding together uh, this, this whole outfit that we see hanging down from his shoulders is the breastplate, all right? It's made of the same embroidered material as the ephod, except this one also has gold settings, gold filigree, gold rings that hold it together, and the gold chain that connects it up to the, the Ankh's stone shoulders, right? It's square, and it's doubled over, so it has some pouches inside uh, where um, where things can be set, which we'll talk about in just a minute. It's also inset, with uh, 12 stones, each representing different tribes of Israel. Each stone has a name of the tribe engraved on it. Now, what do we put in the pockets? (laughs) One of the great mysteries of the Bible. We put into the the doubled over portion in the back of the breastplate, the Urim and Thummim, all right? Now, Anybody that tells you that they know exactly what those are is probably lying to you because the text doesn't tell us what they are. The word itself actually means lights and perfections, okay? And the way that they're used in the text is that they are used for helping to determine God's will or God's counsel. They're placed in those pockets. The text says that they're supposed to be right up against the high priest's, Heart. So determining God's will or a means of determining God's will, consulting with God, is held right up against his very heart, right? These, uh, as I said, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details about what they actually were. Uh, There's only seven times in the text that uh, Urim or Orim are used. And there's only five different times that the thumim are used. Um, They existed clearly into Saul's reign because there's a reference of Saul consulting God through them. And some even claim that it might have existed into the post-exilic era. But again, we don't know that for sure. So the Urim and Thummim are there in the breastplate. We need no reference to uh, Chris's iconic glasses that you can see there. Um, those are not part of the high priestly garb, <clears throat> just our high priestly garb. Uh, but on his head, you'll notice that there is a, uh, a some some of your texts might refer to it as a mitre, some refer to it as a uh, as a turban. Um, it's linen. It's kind of like a crown. Josephus says that it was supposed to be like like the crown on his head, right? It's it's also got a pure golden plate attached to the forehead with a blue cord, and the plate had engraved on it holy to the Lord. Okay. This is this is like the most profound tattoo of all time. Belonging to God and God alone is the idea. Now, the only time that he would serve while wearing something other than this would be on the day of Yom Kippur when he would serve uh, and offer that sacrifice on that day, wearing simply the uh, just a plain linen robe uh, that was made new each year for that occasion. Now, we don't see his feet here, uh, but throughout um, maybe the past thousand years or so, uh, you may have heard reference to the idea that some people think that when he served on the day of Yom Kippur, that, that uh, he would have a rope tied around his ankle. Because when he went in there, if he did something wrong, God would strike him dead. And then we have to haul the guy out and drag him out of the temple because nobody else or in the tabernacle because nobody else is able to go in there to see uh, to to be in God's presence like he is. Right. So is there a rope? Well, apparently the answer is nope. There wasn't a rope uh, because the uh, the idea of there being a rope actually is a tradition that comes from. Some rabbinic texts in uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, The first reference that anybody seems to be able to find was in the Zohar uh, sometime in the 13th century. If you're familiar with that, good on you. I'm not going to take time to explain that to you. Um, But no, as far as the Bible is concerned, as far as any of the early rabbinic material is concerned, as far as the Mishnah is concerned, the Talmud is concerned, there is no reference at all to the idea of him ever having a rope attached to his ankle. So you can take that out of your minds. All right. So we have our basic idea of what animals we use. We have our basic idea of what the priest looks like when we come up to the entrance of the tabernacle as we are about to make sacrifices. So let's turn our attention to the sacrifices themselves the five different kinds of sacrifices. Two thoughts before we get into the burnt offering. <clears throat> First, um, <clears throat> these sacrifices actually can be broken up into kind of subcategories of sacrifices. There are um <clears throat> there are sacrifices that God refers to as his uh his sweet. Aroma sweet smelling aroma sacrifices that um, that are essentially uh, offered in in terms of fellowship with God and then there are the ones that are not considered sweet smelling aromas. These are the sacrifices for sin and for guilt. So you kind of have to separate the two when we talk about burnt offering sacrifices, peace offerings and meal offerings, we're not talking about sin uh, sin sacrifices. It is the sin offering and the guilt offering that's dealing with sin. The others are for fellowship. So you deal with the sin first, and then you would offer sacrifices for fellowship, but that's not the way that the text lists them. It starts with the burn offering, so that's where we'll start. But the second idea before we get into it there that I wanted to mention is that um, there are five different kinds of sacrifice, but there are not only five different reasons to sacrifice. There are different rituals, for which you would use one of these types of sacrifices as God ordained for them. So the cleansing of priests, or uh, the day of Yom Kippur, or the, the, the sacrifice that's offered in a trial for adultery. All of these different types of rituals, uh, the sacrifices that are offered as a part of them, use one of these five different kinds of sacrifices in order to uh, to fulfill God's description of what those rituals were for. So, five kinds, used different ways a couple of different times in the text. The burnt offering. All right. So, the burnt offering in Leviticus 1 has, uh, it's it's an offering made by fire where the entire animal is burned on the altar. It's a burnt sacrifice coming from the the Hebrew word olah, meaning to ascend upwards to God, you have a couple of the, uh, options of which animal you might choose to offer to God as this kind of uh, as this kind of sacrifice, um, simply to to worship God. Right. So you might choose a bull. You might choose a male sheep or male goat. Uh, you might choose uh, the option number two would be turtle doves or pigeons. One offered for sin, one burned if you're too poor. okay. so essentially the delineation is if you got enough money, then you should probably be offering a bull. If you can't offer a bull, then you should probably offer a sheep or a goat because that's kind of the middle class sacrifice. Right. But if one of those is too expensive and you can't afford the Mercedes and you can't afford the Kia, then what do we offer at the bottom? Well, we offer the birds. Right. We offer the turtles. We offer the pigeons. We offer the the Fords. (laughs) I'm not sure. Maybe you like Ford. I don't know. Um, So this animal must be without blemish. Show it to the priest. The priest decides whether it's appropriate for you and your station. The priest decides if it has any blemishes or not. He says, okay, we're going to go ahead with this, right? Now, what happens at this point is the worshiper brings his animal right to the front door of the tabernacle. Now th- there's there's one stipulation here, okay? If you're offering a sheep or a goat, the text says that the offering is supposed to happen at the north side of the altar. Okay, the north side of the altar, which on our picture right here, I don't know if you can see my cursor, but the north side of the altar is here. Remember the the entrance always faces east, the back always faces west, the north is on this side. So, in order to make your sacrifice, if it's a bull, it's outside the courtyard. If it's a if it's a sheep or a goat, it's inside on the north side of the altar. Which means that you would have to go in with the priest to the north side of the altar if you're a worshipper, if you're there to make a sacrifice. Now, odds are not anybody could go in, and odds are that it was probably just the the head of the family, the patriarch of the family, that would be offering it on his and his family's behalf. Uh, but that's the only only opportunity that I know of where where we see um, people potentially moving going into the courtyard themselves where the priests were ministering. So the worshipper brings his animal. He lays his head his hands on the head of the animal, symbolically recognizing the substitution of one life for another. I belong to God. This belongs to God. I am laying my sin, my guilt, my everything on this and um some some very ancient sources say you're supposed to press in with all your might as if you're leaning all your weight on it like this is the only thing that's holding you up interesting right so you you lay your hands on the animal and then they kill it they use a knife they slit the animal's throat guess who slits the throat not the priest no it's the worshipper who does that. Blood splatters everywhere, right? The priest's job is to come in with one of those those uh those those bowls and catch some of the blood as it's spurting out from the animal. And then the priest takes that blood in that bowl takes it to the altar where, where those, those sacrifices will be burned, he splashes the blood against the sides of the altar. Meanwhile, the worshiper, and probably with some help from the priests, the worshiper slays and butchers the animal, takes the skin off. The priest gets to keep the skin. And then he cuts up the pieces of the animal into the parts that it's supposed to be made they cut it up into pieces that will eventually go on the fire. The priest places the pieces on the fire head and the fat, and then the entrails that he washes out, and then the legs With uh, after that. They arrange it all on the altar as it begins to burn. If the animal um, is doves or pigeons because someone poor is making this sacrifice, then the priest is supposed to bring those... Those birds to the altar instead of the worshipper. This is the priest's job. If it's if it's in the case of, of birds, he's supposed to wring off its head. He's supposed to drain its blood on the sides of the altar, splattering it on the sides of the altar. And then um he's supposed to remove the crop and all the feathers, and he throws that on with the ashes on the on the east side of the, the altar. And then uh he's supposed to tear open the bird by its wings and then throw it onto the burning sacrifice. The burnt offering was supposed to be offered once a day at the least. Sacrifice daily, God said, There should be something offering this, this uh this relationship between you and me, this sweet smelling aroma, this uh this idea of. Of our relationship being based on life for life offered to God. The second type of sacrifice is the grain or the meal offering your text might say. And I'm looking at the time and I promise I'm going to speed up here, okay? The grain offering. The grain offering was given by the worshiper to God in thanksgiving. This is always a way of saying thank you, God. Whether it's in terms of the um, of the crops you have brought in, or whether it's in terms of something good that has happened, it must be made either of. It must be made of fine ground flour. You use olive oil poured on and frankincense poured on. The priest will take a portion of it, burn that memorial port portion on the altar, and then the rest of it goes to the priests and the priests get to eat it, right? It's theirs. It belongs to them. You can offer that grain offering baked. You can offer it cooked in a pan or a griddle. You can even offer it uncooked as just roasted grains, and each one of those is offered with oil and frankincense as well. Um, no offering could be made with leaven or with honey, when uh, when the grain offering is for first fruits or for peace offerings, it can have leaven, but then it can't be burned on the altar, which is an interesting stipulation. Um, it's offered; it can be offered as a sin offering in one case, which we'll get to. Well, we probably won't touch on it, but in the case of the poor of the poor. Uh, but all grain offerings, interestingly enough, the text tells us also need to be offered with salt. Okay, so that's a grain offering for thanksgiving. The next is the peace offering. This is an offering given in thanksgiving for peace between you and God, but also between you and others. Okay, so this is the shalom offering. It's it's not only about thanksgiving to God, but it's also about peace with God and with your brothers, it's an um, its offering can be a cow, a lamb or a goat without blemish. You must also bring bread, unleavened bread, wafers, loaves, mixed with oil. Um, one loaf is is offered to God and the priest gets to keep it, but the rest of it, after the worshiper lays his hands on the head of the animal, symbolically recognizing, you know, the substitution of a life given to God, If it's a cow, it's killed at the entrance. If it's otherwise, it's killed before the Lord, which possibly was right there on the north side of the altar. The priest throws the blood on the sides, as we did in the other. The priest and the worshiper butchers it and burns God's portion, which is just the fat, the kidneys, and the liver. And then the breast of the sacrifice is waved before the Lord by the priest. Okay, And then this is the interesting part. Um, After the breast and the the thigh are removed and given to the priest, all the remaining meat of that sacrifice, remember that portion has been burned, a portion has been given to the priest, and then there's a whole bunch of animal left. What are you supposed to do with this? The text tells us that all the remaining meat must be eaten on the day of the offering by anyone who is clean. So in other words, it's a party. It's a potluck. I go and make my offering to say, God, I'm at peace with you. I'm at peace with men. And I invite those men into a meal with me. Anyone who's clean, we're going to eat this entire animal today. You're probably going to need some friends, right? (laughs) You You need some people around you to join you in your celebration of shalom, which is just a really cool idea. And then we get to the sin offering. Um yes, I chose the cute and cuddly lamb for this one on purpose. Ah, cute little lamb. Well, if we're using, if we're uh, excuse me, if we're offering a sin offering, then this is an offering that is committed for sins unintentionally. Um, <clears throat> there are, again, that breakdown in terms of who is making the offering as far as what animal you're allowed to use. Okay, so a priest who sins unintentionally, a priest who sins uh, needs to bring a bull. If it's the whole congregation that sins, the elders are supposed to offer a bull. If it's a sin committed by a leader, like a ruler or a king, eventually, if it's offered by uh, a leader, the sin offering is supposed to be a male goat, and if it's often if it's offered by a commoner, just any one of us coming to offer a sin offering, I knew I I know I broke God's laws, I know I sinned, then it's supposed to be a female goat or a female lamb. And then the last um, though that's how it how it breaks down. The the actual sacrifice itself is very similar to the burnt offering. Again, the worshiper lays his hands on the animal's head. Transfers that idea of their sin and their guilt. The priest catches the blood as the animal is killed. He pours that blood. He splashes that blood on the altar life for life. As he takes it into the courtyard, he sprinkles it seven times inside the tabernacle. In front of the veil. Inside between the holy place and the holy of holies. He sprinkles it seven times in front of the veil, and then he puts some of the blood on the horns of the altar of incense, and he puts the rest of the blood on the altar outside in the courtyard. The priests butcher the animal, burn God's portion, the kidneys, the fat, the liver, the skin, and everything else that's part of a sin offering is then taken outside the camp to what they say is a clean place. It's treated completely differently than all the other sacrifices. Now, for each one of these, the, the level of importance kind of goes down just a little bit. And so uh, the portion where the priest would sprinkle blood inside the tabernacle is doesn't take place for anyone else offering other than if it's for a priest or if it's an offering for the, the whole congregation. Um <clears throat> trying to skip ahead just a little bit here. Let's move on to the to the trespass or the guilt offering at this point, all right? Trespass or guilt offering. Now, this is, the text says, an offering given for a breach of faith unintentionally, or it can be done intentionally if it's done against your neighbor. Okay, so this is this is an offering that is distinguished from the sin offering. The sin offering is more about the sin itself, the condition of sin that I have find myself uh, that I find myself having committed. The trespass or the guilt offering is more about making recompense. Okay, so it's more about the idea of trying to make justice done than just the idea of sin being covered for. OK, so um, so you have to bring a sin offering with your guilt offering. Whenever you offer a guilt offering, you got to offer them both for the actual sin and for the damages of the sin, both to you and to others. Right. So compensation, the text says to the Lord for any any of these sins would be an offering of a ram and its value has to be appraised. So the priest has to look it over and say, mm, OK, I'll give you I'll give you 200 bucks for them right and then he has to decide one-fifth of that value also has to be given by the worshiper to the priest turn in, ter- in money okay so one-fifth of the value of that animal also has to be offered as as a uh as a compensation and it's given to the priests they're offered the same way as the sin offerings um and uh, as I mentioned sin and guilt offerings, frequently were offered together. Um, Now, that idea of making restitution, it, it might bring to your mind um, a, a couple of occurrences in the text where we see people making recompense, so to speak, when they're confronted with their sin. One that might pop into your mind, as it, as it has for me throughout the years, is the story of Zacchaeus, right? When he uh when he confessed to the lord that you know he was changing his ways and and jesus was in his house and he said lord if if i have uh if i have harmed anyone if i've taken anything inappropriate i am going to pay those people back i'm going at first i'm going to give away half of everything i own i'm going to give everybody back four times what it's worth you might think to yourself four times four times wow that's That's a lot of compensation for, you know, if I take one dollar, I'm going to give you four back. Um, And maybe, maybe he's making a a, uh, trespass offering as a part of this, so to speak. But interestingly enough, there's actually another sacrifice uh, described in, uh, in Exodus chapter 22, whenever someone steals something from someone. Uh, if it's an ox, you pay them five times. If it's the equivalent of a sheep, you're supposed to pay them four times. So possibly, possibly what Zacchaeus is saying is, I've stolen. Or maybe in any case where I might have stolen, I'm going to pay back four times as much. So you see the the, the Levitical sacrificial system at work there in the New Testament. All right, so you've Brought your sacrifice to the entrance of the temple. You've made the sacrifice that you're going to make with the help of the priest. It's gone up in smoke there in God's presence before the Lord. And and you walk away from this place, you walk away from the tabernacle. Good with God. Right? You've you've managed to fix what was broken in the relationship your sin has been taken care of atonement has been made that's the word that uh that is used frequently all the way through all of these things make atonement make atonement make atonement by this you will make atonement well if you're anything like me you're going to you're going to ask the question a little bit like how how does this actually work what is this a What is it about this process that, for God, makes it so that judgment doesn't have to come and that we now have fellowship, we now have communion? Well, I want to talk a little bit about atonement, the covering of sin. Frequently, maybe even most often, when you see the word atonement in your Bible, it's the Hebrew word kafar, right? Um, Essentially that word is used to describe a couple of different things, okay? It's a little bit different from English. It's not a one-for-one equivalency, but most often it means either to cover something, or when it's used as a noun, it is the cover of something. It's uh, used to describe washing something, or, or in its range of meaning, it also means to appease the wrath of something. Okay, so the idea is there's this offensive, gnarly thing, and atonement is the idea that I'm going to cover it or I'm going to wash it clean. I'm going to remove the offense that's around it. I'm going to make it so that when you look at it, you don't see that nasty, gnarly thing anymore. All you see is what's covering it, right? So um, the sacrificial system, according to Hebrews, According to Hebrews, the sacrificial system could never actually remove sin, especially eternal. It says the priests offer sacrifices daily, day after day after day, offering these sacrifices that can't ever take away sin. Well, if it can't take away sin, then why did God tell them to do it? Why did God expect them to make these sacrifices? Well, the sacrificial system may never have been able to take away sins, but it could atone for sins and for guilt. It could cover it. It could wash it. It could appease the wrath of God about it. Let me give you an an illustration, okay? As, as horrifying as it might be to think about for some of you um every once in a while I kiss my wife uh I mentioned to or, or I mentioned to you last week that I have four kids three of them are boys um they're very much boys <laughs> in every way and um uh, my oldest one in particular he's 12 now but for years every time I would kiss my wife my oldest son would go like this ow oh I don't want to see that ah he he hated watching me kiss my wife he did not want to see it and so he would cover his eyes with his hands uh and in a sense you could say he was atoning he was he was covering the offensive acts uh he was cleaning up his vision of that offensive horrible kissing he was appeasing his own disgust, by covering what he could, what he didn't want to see, right? That's the idea of atonement. It, it, it has this kind of broad range of of what it what it means. We we use the word atonement, um, but another English word that we sometimes use for portions of this description is expiation. That word emphasizes the idea of the removal of the guilt, the removal of the offense. And then sometimes we also use the word propitiation in English. Uh, That word emphasizes the idea of satisfying God's wrath. Okay. Um, One more illustration about this. Okay. So if uh, if you steal candy from a store, and you get caught by the store owner. Ah, I gotcha. How dare you take this from my store? If I jump in and I offer to pay for that candy bar that you just stole and the owner says, all right, all right, no harm, no foul. I'll take the money. I haven't lost anything. I'm not gonna press charges. The guilt is, or the the offense is now gone. The guilt is no longer there because payment has been made. That's the idea of expiation. Okay. Now, if the owner just really wants to press charges because you stole that candy, and I say, all right, if you really want to press charges, don't press charges against my friend here from Equip Class. No, no, no. Press charges against me. I'll be the one who goes and 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 takes that punishment. I'll be the one who goes and satisfies that owner's sense of justice, that satisfies his anger over that injustice that has been done. That's the idea of propitiation, okay? Now, either one can be considered within the range of what we mean when we use the word atonement. It's all mixed in together. It's the idea of God has provided this method To the Hebrew people in the tabernacle, where both the sin is dealt with, the offense is dealt with, the justice, the wrath that is deserved, the punishment that's deserved is appeased. All of it is washed. All of it is covered. All of it is satisfied. It's all taken care of. It doesn't take it away. It doesn't remove it. But it covers it, it washes it, it satisfies. So sacrifice is made atonement by substituting that animal and his lifeblood in exchange for my lifeblood. Making that animal the the appeasement price, okay, the cost, And that's the idea of propitiation and also redemption, which we're not bringing that word into it so far. But it carries that idea as well. It's making the blood, the life of that animal, the expiation that brings peace and fellowship again. Interestingly, um, last week we mentioned how on um, on the Ark of the Covenant, inside the Holy of Holies, the lid, the solid gold lid almost almost two feet square of solid gold that the cherubim sit on, that God talks to us out of between, through, uh, through that space above the, the covering. Well, that word actually is kafar, right? Now, some people, some of your Bibles might translate that just lid, cover, right? But if it's using that word kafar, it carries with it all this other meaning associated with it as well. Another way of translating that, probably a better way of translating that, is that what rested on top of that Ark of the Covenant was not just a lid, not just a cover. It was a propitiatory. It was an atoning thing, an atoning place. It was a place where expiation and propitiation happened it was the place where God spoke to Moses it was the place where God dwelt get this I mean this is this is cool to me the place where wrath is placated is the same place where God is the idea of God being wrathful against sin, never overshadows the fact that God is also the source of what satisfies that wrath. It's the place where he is, where he reveals himself. It's the idea of the beginning of understanding grace. Granted, it's in a nascent form. It's not nearly as as full as we understand it, with the revelation of time to- as God has gone through time to show us that we understand today in the New Testament, but it's the beginning of the idea of grace in the process of how God atones for sins. Not that God didn't have grace before, but the first time that we see it in terms of the sacrificial system. All right. So, uh, you got to ask the question. Now, there are some people who accuse um, people like me who are dispensational and uh, premillennial. Um, I, we have been accused in the past of claiming that in the Old Testament, people were saved or made eternally right with God through the sacrificial system. And now in the New Testament, in this dispensation of grace, that now they're saved through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross as though there are two different ways that God atoned for sins and that people were saved one way in the Old Testament and people were saved another way in the New Testament. We've been accused of this, but it's not true. We don't teach that. We don't believe that those sacrifices eternally made appeasement, made atonement for anybody. They only covered it, and it was only temporary. God said this has to be done again and again and again and again. This isn't what saves you. It's just what atones temporarily for your sin. So what saved them? For those that that are going to be in heaven with us one day, what is it that saves them? Well, Hebrews makes it clear that the exact same thing that saves you and me, is the same thing that saved them. We were justified, we were set right, declared righteous, not because we did all the right things, but by our faith, faith in God, faith in God's plan, faith that he would make us acceptable, provide the means of our acceptability. And those sacrifices at the time were all that they knew, but they knew that God was the one Who was going to make them right before him? Faith would be their means of acceptability, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who was the fulfillment of all of what God was going to do in terms of how humanity would come back into a right standing with God. The atonement that Jesus made was eternal. These sacrifices were temporary but they point in faith not knowing the end of that story yet for those old testament people towards jesus which we now understand in the progress of revelation so a couple of lessons from uh the mosaic sacrificial system and i would say that these are lessons that could have been understood quite clearly from uh by folks in the old testament in the tabernacle as well as can be understood by us today the first thing that i think becomes evidently clear as leviticus minutely and very detailed way describes the sacrificial system and the blood involved and and the cost of what it would take to atone for sin the first idea is my life is forfeit because of sin i mean we don't we don't often put it in those those kind of terms and we use new testament terms <laughs> um we say the wages of sin is death right but another way of saying that kind of in line with the sacrificial system and the experience of Faith in God through the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Another way of understanding that is the idea that my life is forfeit. It doesn't belong to me. I don't own it anymore because of sin. My life, my life is gone. And it's because of the sin that I have committed. My life is owed in payment. The next idea that I think is... It's important to gather from the sacrificial system is God's plan for atonement is incredibly gracious. Yeah, blood is necessary for atonement. Yeah, it's going to cost me one of my herd. It might cost me two of my herd or my flock. It's going to cost me a little bit, but it's not going to cost me my life. My life is forfeit. But to to end up in right standing with God, it's not going to cost me that. No, no. God is going to provide another way. Not my blood, but a substitute's blood. The idea of substitutionary atonement and the grace of God to provide another way. Not my life for my life. Something else's life for my life is an incredibly gracious idea to grab a hold of. We, of course, know that that's Jesus on our behalf. But it could also be seen in the sacrificial system. The third lesson that I think we can draw from the Mosaic sacrificial system is that fellowship and communion, acceptance with God, is the result of atonement. Now stop and think about this, okay? Um if you live your whole life constantly trying to uh constantly trying to be clean, constantly trying to make the right sacrifices, constantly trying to remember the fact that um that you're gonna sin again, you're gonna sin again, you're gonna sin again. It's difficult to understand that concept that fellowship and communion is the result of atonement. But did you notice that of the five different sacrifices that God describes in these passages, three of them come after the sin is already dealt with? After the sin is already dealt with, you can offer burnt offerings. You can offer thanks offerings, grain offerings. You can offer fellowship and peace, shalom offerings. There's There's more offerings that have to do with an ongoing acceptance from God once the sin is dealt with than there are sacrifices related to the sin itself. I think that's incredible. You see, I think something for us to consider is that once once fellowship is achieved, once acceptance has been made, It's only our acceptance with God is only based on that sacrifice, not on our current performance. They had to go back again and again and again, and then they could have fellowship with God. Then they broke it. Then they had fellowship with God. Then they broke it. Then they had fellowship with God. You and I don't have that same experience. Fellowship with God is the Christian existence. Because once that acceptance has been made, the sacrifices are done. The broken fellowship is over. You are justified in God's eyes. You belong to him. Your relationship to him is secure. Unbreakable. Not because you manage to keep doing good stuff. But because Jesus' sacrifice was that good on your behalf. We live our Christian lives so often as if we're still under the sacrificial system. You are eternally in communion with God. He has chosen you. He has made a way for you. He has redeemed you. He has propitiated for you. He has atoned for you and now you are in perfect shalom with God is that your christian existence now the the fourth or excuse me the fourth lesson i draw out is how dramatically the sacrifices so clearly point to jesus and the the new testament Obviously gives us more information, but in its context, even at the time. It dramatically reminds people that this atonement as small and frequent as it has to happen, sacrifice by sacrifice by sacrifice, there has to be a final greater atonement coming. And it was Jesus, though they didn't know it. Some pointed towards the Messiah who would eventually bear the sin of the world and finally remove it entirely from the account of every worshiper. Even though they didn't know his name, they knew that a better sacrifice had to be coming. So what I would like to do, just to close, is to read some verses from Isaiah 53 with you. It says this about the final, perfect atoning sacrifice for sin. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we are like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Thank God that he did, amen, for you, for me, by faith for those in the Old Testament. Let's pray. Father, you are good beyond our understanding. With all of our our study, with all of our hard work trying to understand, with all of our intellect weighed in on the issue, we only catch a glimpse of your goodness and your grace. Like Moses seeing the backside of your glory, all the good that we see in your revelation of your word, in the work of Jesus Christ in your prophetic pictures of how you're going to bring all of this together at the end of human history. Through all of it, God, we know because you are infinite that we only have a taste. May you give us eyes to see. May you give us ears to hear. May you give us hearts that love all of your goodness, for eternity. We love you. We thank you. We bless your name, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, our final, perfect, atoning sacrifice, we come into your presence, Father. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to our FOI Equip podcast. Again, I want to remind you to go to foiequip.org and sign up to be on our mailing list. We'd love to see you at one of our free, live, online FOI Equip classes. Also, be sure to listen to our other podcasts like the Jew and Gentile podcast hosted by yours truly and Steve Herzig. Also, the Gesher podcast hosted by Ty Perry. You can find out more ways to get involved with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry by visiting foiequip.org. FOIEquip is an outreach of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. We are a worldwide evangelical ministry proclaiming biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while bringing physical and spiritual comfort to the Jewish people. Hey, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.